Thanks, Joe. Uh, appreciate that introduction, except Joe is completely wrong about the window washing. <laughs> you can talk to him about window washing. Um, I got out of that very quickly. Anyways, I just want to give you a personal update about our family ministry, and then we will jump in the, into the Word together. It's a, a, just a great privilege to be able to join you guys today. I was able to fly over this morning. And fly back uh, to Spokane tonight. So it's just a real, real joy. Um, just with, with us, we, as a lot of you may, maybe know, we, we came back about a year ago because our oldest son had some really specific uh, developmental help in developmental slash educational that we really had to address. And uh, we're thankful that that is getting addressed. It's just a long, slow road. So we're continuing to hold our hands open, asking the Lord to give us continued wisdom as we seek that. In my role with reaching and teaching now, as I am based stateside, um, upcoming I have a trip to Oaxaca, Mexico in about two weeks, in which a few reaching and teaching missionaries that are on the ground there are putting on a church strengthening conference. So there's about 100 pastors from uh, all over central, southern Mexico that are coming and um, I get to help with that and then preach at one of the guys' churches. And uh, so you can pray for that trip, that it would be a, a source of encouragement and strengthening of these churches that are serving in some really hard places. And then in November, there's an upcoming trip where Reaching and Teaching has a site off the coast of West Africa on a little island called Sao Tome. And uh, there's an on-the-ground missionary there who has a relationship with about 50 pastors, bivocational pastors, and they've asked, they said, could you please provide the help and training that we need? Because we sit in contexts where we have um, more access to resources and even in our your small group Bible studies throughout the week than a lot of these pastors across the world have access to, to anything. So you can pray for those um, two trips upcoming in October and November. And then familial-wise, uh, we are having our sixth child. Uh, in January, so you could pray uh, for continued strength uh, for my wife as um, kind of moving from second to third trimester, and it's a blessing to have number six come into the world, and um, so you could pray for us in that that regard. So let me pray, and then we will jump into Titus chapter two. Lord, we count it a great privilege to be able to open your word, to gather as God's people, to encourage and exhort one another to keep our eyes heavenward upon you. We need you. We need your spirit to work in us. I pray as we open your word that, Christ, you would be magnified and each of us would be encouraged and exhorted to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In this we pray. Amen. So if you could open to Titus chapter 2, this morning, well, this, it's not this morning, it's this afternoon. This afternoon we are going to be in Titus chapter 2. Two, well, three verses that are the foundation for what this whole book is about. But imagine with me for a moment 
that you are on a small and bustling island full of commerce, a passageway in between one of the most important parts of the world at this time, the island of Crete in the Mediterranean world. But think of Portland, if Portland, with how influential and important and insignificant it is in the U.S. world and economy, think of if Portland were an island. Crete was a similar way. Significant in the eyes of this world, but it was a dark and evil, vile, violent, deceptive place. This island of Crete was known for the evil of its people, characterized by those who gorged themselves while others went without, those who preyed on the elderly, who hated others and were hated by others. Worse than the most vile city we could think of. Consumed in the moment, there was a sense of religiosity and spirituality, but the kind that took advantage of people and did not serve people. There were the material rich that sought to destroy others. That resembled Nineveh of old or Corinth or Antioch. Full of dazzling images and living for momentary pleasure. Cities have reputations, don't they? And the one on Crete was not a good one. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 12, it says, a prophet of their own, of Crete, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul says this testimony is true. So we might think of Las Vegas or Amsterdam or New York or San Francisco or Portland or Seattle or Spokane. So what hope is there What hope is there for a people and a place so captured and captivated by such darkness? Such darkness that it almost seems hopeless. What hope is there for a people so entrenched in that? Unable to perceive and understand light or the goodness and beauty of who God is. What hope is there, what truth or the reality that changes the darkest areas of the world? The cities of Malaysia and Thailand that are filled with sex trafficking that change the Vegases of the world or the Silicon Valleys of the world whose God is power and prestige. Portland or the highlands of India. The same gospel that has changed you, I pray, is what will change the people of Portland and India and to the ends of the earth. And in this, this morning or this afternoon, we're going to see the Savior and His manifold grace that was at work on the island of Crete and here as well. Now Paul writes this letter of Titus to Titus from prison And Titus is on the island of Crete to put what remained in order so that the churches would be established. So that elders will be eldering. The body would be living and functioning so as to effectively evangelize the unconverted with the gospel. And so we get to look at a few verses of this jam-packed three chapters of the book. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever driven from 
Oregon towards the Rocky Mountains. Or think of just a big, beautiful mountain range. Now, the farther you're out, it looks like just a mountain range. You can't see the individual peaks, but it's breathtaking. And as you get closer, it becomes more and more breathtaking. Because you get to see them up close. You get a full sense of what was once a one-dimensional panorama across the horizon are now peaks and peaks filled with awe and wonder. Now this morning, this afternoon, I'm sorry, 3 p.m., this afternoon we're going to look at a panorama, a vista of God's great grace. And we're going to look at some of those individual peaks of His great grace in the grace that changes everything. Again, this afternoon, the prayer is that individually and corporately, your life would be lived according to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Live your life according to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to read the text, and then we will go through the verses. Titus 2, 11-14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from our lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So first, be amazed that the Savior has appeared. Be amazed that the Savior has appeared. Now, early in the earlier verses of chapter 2, Paul has just given the specific instructions to older men, older women, younger men and younger women, and how to live out, how to adorn, how to wear and model the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, he gives the basis, the structure, the foundation of what all of those exhortations are built upon. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has come onto the scene in full measure. The favor of God is here. So you ask, how does did this grace of God come? How did it appear and how was it made visible? Well, the grace of God has appeared exclusively in a person. He appeared, Jesus, in the incarnation. It is as if he epiphanied. He is here in the flesh. And in the midst of utter, complete pitch darkness of sin and rebellion, when the type of darkness where you can't see your hand in front of you, when you have no hope and you're hopeless, blinding light has come and appeared. This is the thought of John 1.14 when it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the very grace of God to mankind. Now, you can't, have, you can't have grace without the person and work of Jesus. You can have imitation grace, but not biblical grace. 
not saving grace. John 1.17 For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace is that one word summary of, of God's saving act in Christ. Freely given, lavishly given, completely given to sinners who by faith believe Him. Now, the weight and magnitude of this word grace is further defined by whom it is from. By whom the grace is coming from. This grace, goodness, and kindness, this favor is from God Himself. The maker of heaven and earth. The holy and righteous king of kings. The immortal, invisible, the only true and living God. The one who holds the nations as a drop in the bucket. The one who has placed all the stars into place and upholds the universe by the word of his power. The one who keeps oxygen flowing in your lungs. It is this God, this holy of holies, the God who answers to no other, who was and is and is to come. The one who dwells in perfect holiness and purity. The one who causes the sun to rise each day. The one who never slumbers nor sleeps. The very one whom no one can stand in the presence of because of his infinite worth and perfection. It is from him that this grace has come in the Savior who has appeared. So this grace of God in Christ Jesus has come. But what does it do? What does the grace of God that has come do or carry out or accomplish? Well, the second part of verse 11 and then into 12 and 13, we will see what the grace that has appeared accomplishes. So again, stand amazed at the grace that has appeared by cherishing four realities that his appearing accomplishes. So subpoint A, his grace brings salvation for all people. His grace brings salvation for all people. Look at the verse. Bringing salvation for all people. Paul is reminding those in Crete who are now a part of God's family that they were in hopeless darkness without him inter- intervening. Now without God miraculously doing something, we are dead in our sin as as Job prayed in the pastoral prayer. We are in the wretched prison of our own rule and reign. And we are in need of rescue from our own sin, from the father of lies, without God's intervention, who is ruling and reigning in our hearts. We have transgressed and sinned and lived and loved the darkness. And in need of deliverance and rescue. And in him that rescue comes. So for whom does this rescue and salvation come? Well, what does it say? It says, for all people. For all people. Now, this isn't some wishy-washy claim that all paths lead to God as long as you're genuine and that you'll be saved. This isn't a universal proof text that all will be saved. But it is saying that universally, across the globe, across mankind, In all of history and every day into the future, the salvation of God has come. And that salvation, that deliverance occurs 
exclusively and in its entirety through the grace of God that has appeared in our incarnate Redeemer, Jesus. Now, can't you imagine Paul penning these words with sentences, I mean, as he's penning these sentences, with tears flowing down his face as he wrote, bringing salvation for all people, knowing, knowing that he was a forgiven murderer, an executor of Christians. He knew his sin and he knew his Savior. This grace, this gospel, this salvation is to be proclaimed for every human being on the face of the planet, every person on the dark island of Crete, every father, mother, and child, every person at your workplace, and every aunt and uncle, friend and acquaintance, every pastor and prostitute, every abortionist and neonatal nurse, whether billionaire or bankrupt, cannibal or philanthropist, legalist or pleasure seeker, slave or slaveholder, this is the message for all people. And it is at that wonder and that, dare I say, scandal of the grace of God It's not that God looks and overlooks sin and says, oh, okay, no big deal, no worry. I'll just pretend that didn't exist. No, it is the payment for that treason, for that sin and rebellion against God that must be satisfied. And Jesus has appeared to bring that salvation. So Jesus saved a Christian murdering terrorist named Saul in Acts chapter 9 and made him the greatest missionary Recorded. How does the song go? Ruin sinners to reclaim. Alleluia. What a Savior. This is why we go to the ends of the earth with the message on the hope of the gospel. And this is why we cross the street as well. Because the grace of God has come and brought salvation to all people. And we are. We are to stand amazed in the reality that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And secondly, the grace of God disciples us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. The grace of God disciples us or teaches us, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. Now, I use the word disciple, and that, that can mean that's under the umbrella of teach train, instruct. It's all-inclusive. Now, think of a father. No good father is simply there for the birth of a child and then he just abandons that child. No, a good father nurtures and trains, patiently instructs and teaches. And part of that, as you likely all know, is helping that child learn to say no to certain things. Protecting them from that which is harmful harmful, and helping train them to say no to what is evil and wrong and harmful. That's part of growing up. And we have a good and perfect father. who He's with us. He didn't abandon us. He, in his grace, conforms us to the image of Christ. His grace works in us. It's a saving grace and it's a sanctifying grace. 
He who causes us to be born again will cause us to grow as well. So what does His grace train us or disciple us to renounce? What, what does the verse say? It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. Those two words are kind of big picture, all-encompassing words that envision and see the totality of what is not of God. To renounce or abandon has that thought of formally declaring one's abandonment from. I am no longer what I was and who I was. I am no longer a child of the devil, my own, and I have been born of God, and now I am his. This is the same thought of renounce or abandon in Luke 9 when Jesus says to those who wish to follow him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's, it's handing over the reins of your life. But sometimes we, we just see that as we just need to give it up, which is so true. But we need to see the absolute privilege of renouncing ungodliness and worldly desires as well. It's, it's like handing over your little Lego kingdom that you've lived so long for and saying, no, I am a son and heir of God Most High, and I'm going to follow Him with all of my heart. His grace enables that. Ungodliness is the, the framework of thinking and of life and pursuits that is errant or absent of the living God making any impact on your life and decisions. Ungodliness is that life that never speaks of the good news, of the grace of God. Ungodliness is world living as if this world is our home. The grace of God teaches us to resist the onslaught of the passions that are wrapped up in this world. It is trading your best life now in the eyes of the world and to be transformed to see and live for that which is eternal. Now, He and His grace, it, it transforms our ingrown eyes to see Him, love Him, and pursue Him. Even changing those who are bored with and yawn at the thought of Jesus Christ to make him the most thrilling reality in all the universe. Now it's a process. This training is a process. It's a struggle. Because our own flesh, and we have an enemy who's seeking to devour us and choke us. But his grace and his indwelling spirit teaches us to spot the flaming arrows of the evil one. He in his grace enables us to raise the shield of faith, proclaiming to our own hearts that his grace is sweeter. His grace is greater and better. Now, what are those things in your life that you are being reminded of that need to be renounced or abandoned as you follow the great Savior who saved you? The grace of God, the gospel in salvation and in sanctification trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. But it also teaches us, as recipients of His grace, how we are then to live. 
how we are then to live in this present world. His grace trains us how to live our life in this fallen, evil, present world. Look at the second half of verse 12. So he contrasts. His grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And what? To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope. We are to stand amazed in the reality of the grace of God that has appeared. Knowing that His grace disciples us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires and how to live the remainder of our days. His grace is sanctifying His children to live with self-control, upright, godly lives in this present age. Now these words, self-control, upright, godly, and waiting, have this thought about everything, about everything changes when the grace of God has come into someone's life. The inward, self-control, how to control yourself. The outward, the upright before others, and upward, the, the godly. So, these are all different. And they're as different on the island of Crete, of those who've been redeemed by God, as it would be those in the greater Portland area who are living godly, upright, and self-controlled lives. Now, this doesn't mean that people are, would just stepped out of everything of life and became recluses and lived their life within the four walls of their house or a church building. No, quite the opposite. It was as you're on the island of Crete or you're in the greater Portland area or wherever you live and work, when you're working and neighboring, as you're living this present life in the midst of darkness, you are the light of God's grace, as embassies of His kingdom, embassies of light in the midst of darkness, with, armed with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether in your home, or working in the financial industry, or making computers, or whatever it is the Lord has put on your plate in front of you, being His representative. Look at the... Paul continues in chapter 3 where he gives them really specific ways to live this out. He says, remind them, Titus, remind the Christians to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Then he gives the reason. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, and etc. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. So he's saying, live this way because you have been saved. Now, the word self-control, that internal aspect, is, is mentioned 
more times than anything else in this book. I think eight times it's mentioned in these chapters. He he says it to men, women, old, young, be self-controlled, which is really being under the control of the Spirit of God. You are putting your life in submission to Him and your appetites are under control. Your, Your soul appetites, your passions, your zeals are under control and they aren't controlling you. But why is self-control, why is self-control such a specific exhortation that Paul gives here? Because tasting living in the grace of God results in living a bold, God-centered lives. And self-control lives are visible evidence that you're not living for this present world. But that your eyes and vision and appetite are for something and someone else, not of this world. Your delight is in the grace and goodness of the and loving kindness of God our Savior. Upright or the outward is this life that is lived in the context of the world, as directly contrasting, which was the case in Crete and is no different today, those who are evil and lazy and sly and shady in this present world. Godly or upward is this life that serves is in submission to another toward God. Your life is another's. The whole focus of your life is upon Him. Your life, my life, ought not to make sense to those in this world. Because godliness is our pursuit, our greatest desire. Now, another characteristic of God's grace is how we live in this present world is an expectancy of His return, an appetite for Him. Look at the end of verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now what what is this part? This is part of salvation. Salvation saves, sanctifies, and glorifies. Grace is the rescue from your sin... It is the fleeing from its power, and it is also the, the eternal union with him when he returns. This waiting for is an expectant, anticipating, jumping out of your seat, excitedness for something or someone. Think, think of that couple waiting to be united in marriage. There's a certain expectancy that comes with that. Do you anticipate his return? Do you long to be united to your Savior? Are you expectantly waiting his appearing? Or have you been so duped and so blinded by this present world that his return makes little to no difference in your life? His grace changes us to desire and to anticipate His return. Why why does the grace of God birth such expectancy, that anticipatory waiting of His glorious return? Look look back at the verses, verse 13. It's because of who He is. He is our, our blessed hope. He's our blessed hope. 
He's our blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Our confidence that the believer in Christ Jesus is made right with God so that when you stand and when you appear before him, Jesus and his righteousness will be your reply. And this is what liberates those who've been born of God to be joyful in heartache, to sing his praises in the midst of, in the midst of suffering and hardship and confusion, to endure patiently in this present world, for we know that this life is but a vapor. This life is but a vapor with the perspective that eternity and death is even just the blessed door by which we enter into the joy of our Master, Savior, and Lord. The grace of God is real, tangible, and fully expressed in the person and work of Jesus. Now again, this is all still under the first major mountain peak of God's grace. The fact that He appeared in His grace in Jesus Christ. And it didn't He brought salvation. It instructs us how to live, what to renounce, what to put off, what to live with and in the manner by which we are to live, expectantly waiting. So, and then the second major mountain peak of God's grace that we're going to look at is that he humbled, or be humbled, that God gave himself. Be humbled that God himself gave himself. And there's, we see three reasons from this text that he gave himself, that Jesus died on our behalf. So sub point A under point two, Jesus died to purchase his people. Jesus died to purchase his people. Look at verse 14. God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us, from all lawlessness. We, in this verse, we hear and see the very heartbeat and mind of the God of this universe. He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. To redeem is none less than to purchase us back from the slave market. To buy us back as his own. And we know the two realities in life is There's only two possibilities, either your own and under the submission of the old master, Satan, or you're under the ownership of God himself, of Jesus Christ. So either a child of Satan or a child of God. And this says, but God, even as Ephesians 2 was read in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. God, in His redeeming and purchasing grace, He takes those imprisoned in sin, pays the ransom for those who are guilty, and declares righteous. He forgives. Not only that, He makes us part of His family. Those who cursed Him and were apathetic towards Him, hated Him, or even bored with Him. He takes those who are under the curse of the law and declares innocent and full of the righteousness of Christ. You know, especially today in age, 
some might gawk or mock at the exclusivity of Jesus Christ being the only way, the truth, and the life. But when you truly understand the real grace of God, you'll be amazed that there is even one way to be made right with God. He willingly, humbly gave himself the one who, the only one in all of existence who could do it. His redeeming grace in Jesus makes lawbreakers innocent, takes faithless and declares them faithful, takes mutinous, rebellious, and declares them submissive, revolting, declared perfect, dead, declared alive, detestable, declared prized, disobedient, declared obedient, defiled, declared purified. That him, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Alleluia. What a Savior. So we are, we are to be humbled by the reality that Jesus gave himself to purchase a people, but he also gave himself to purify a people for his own possession. Look at, back at verse 14. Who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He is magnified and exalted and extolled by taking a people for himself and making them his own, prized by God, a defiled and impure people, making them pure, declaring them innocent. And we, we do not come to this equation, this relationship, pure or spotless. We don't add anything good or right or beautiful to this. It's what He does and who He is and what He does with us in His purchasing and redeeming grace. He chose me. He chose you. We are unlovely and self-centered. and We loved our sin. And He freed us to have eyes heavenward. To prize him. How can it be? How can it be that he would do this? Groom, always faithful, chaste, and perfectly pure, honorable, good, takes the abandoning, loosed, steeped in dark in adultery, scarlet lettered one, and loves her, gives himself for her, to love her, protect her, provide for her, and sanctify her. He takes this unthinkable union. And puts it on display as, a, as the magnitude of the greatness of his love. This is Ephesians 5 lived out. Christ loved the church. And what did he do? He gave himself up for her. That why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so in the ages to come, for all eternity, those who have been cleansed by His blood and His purifying grace will sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will all receive glory. 
When you have tasted of that grace, of that immeasurable richness of Jesus the Savior who gave himself to ransom you and to purify you, you are compelled. You're compelled by sheer and utter thankfulness to love and to live in his grace given to you. Because you can say with deep abiding joy, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and what? Gave himself up for me. Look at the end of verse 14 again. And answer with me. What characterizes a people whom he gave himself to redeem and purify? What is the result? What characterizes a people whom he gave himself for to redeem and purify? What characterizes a people whose prison sentence has been satisfied by another, whose bondage is finished, whose chains are gone, who were naked and destitute and are now clothed and made heirs of the king and now are ambassadors of the king and citizens of his kingdom? What characterizes those people? So be humble that he gave himself to purchase a people, to purify a people for his own possession, and third, to purpose a people to good works that magnify him. To purpose a people to good works that magnify him. How then shall we live? In utter thankfulness to do good. You have been bought by God and are his, and now joyfully are commissioned to be his in this world, to testify of him, to expand his kingdom, to live for his glory. As 1 Peter 2 describes, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Your life is to be characterized by prizing him and proclaiming him because of what he has done in your life. Now just think of this, this coming week. Sometimes we struggle with how do I reach out to others? How do I bring the gospel to bear in situations and conversations? Maybe just start here. Tell someone, can I tell you what God has done in my life? Just begin there. They can't deny that. Just begin there. Seek out opportunities to do good to those whom the Lord has put in your life by first proclaiming him. A a people enthralled in the grace of God are zealous for good works. A life empowered by his, his grace and glory. Zealous is ardent, active, diligent, fervent, burning, obsessed, wild-eyed, spirited, afire, eager to do good works that magnify Jesus. And do you testify of him and live for him and his grace as one who has been raised from the dead? Or are these just lifeless facts like a homework assignment? 
I pray not. Have you experienced that grace that changes everything? Now, he and his grace turned a pharisaical Christian-killing terrorist, as we said in Paul, to pen these words into a bold missionary. He turned to Peter, who denied Christ three times to his face because of being frightened and scared. And Jesus, in his grace, turned him into a bold proclaimer so that he could sleep in prison not fearful of what would happen the next day. In John 4, he changed an adulterating woman into the town evangelist as the one proclaiming the one who is and who gives living water. And he turned those on the island of Crete. He changed them by his grace. And there on that dark island, full of darkness, little places of light, of the the gospel shining. And he calls us to that same reveling in God's grace, to, to savor it and proclaim it. We are to stand amazed that the Savior has come and appeared, that his salvation is here, and it trains us to renounce the world to live for Him and to expectantly wait for Him. We we cannot be content with anything less than the grace of God which changes everything. His grace saves and sanctifies and unites us into all eternity with our Savior, Jesus. Will you live in the grace of God in Christ Jesus this week? Cling to Him? I pray and I plead so. Matt Papa, a modern day, what I would call Keith Green, uh, writes a lot of really good music. And he wrote the lyrics to this song called This Changes Everything. And just in closing, I want to read that as it, um, as it encompasses a lot of what we have spoke about. And he says, I grew up in a little town Used to sing in the old church house. There's a pew where I used to hide. Learned the story about a man who died. Well, I was sure I had heard that he got back up. But as we broke the bread and drank the cup, seemed the faces told another tale. They were as dry as the bread was stale. Did I miss something? Was I not supposed to cry? Did I hear the preacher say, Jesus is alive? If this is true, this changes everything. If this is real, I've got to tell the world. If he is God, then I have a choice to make. If I believe, then I must follow him. Now I've got a wife and a family. We live in a land that's safe and free. And on every corner a steeple shines where I've been taught to build a happy life. I've been taught to build a happy life. Did we miss something Are we not supposed to cry when so many don't know Jesus is alive? If this is true, this changes everything. If this is real, I've got to tell the world. If he is God, I have a choice to make. If I believe, then I must follow him. Oh Lord, have I become a man too scared to be a child again? 
too comfortable with amazing grace, familiar with the empty grave? Did I miss something or have I begun to lie? Do I really live like Jesus is alive? If this is true, this changes everything. If this is real, I've got to tell the world. Because this is true and this changes everything. This is real, so I've got to tell the world that He is God. Now there's a choice to make. If you believe, then you must follow Him. Let it be true of us. Let's pray. God, we praise You and thank You for the amazing grace that You have given. In Your grace appearing in the person and work of Jesus, who took us from our sin and raised us to new life, and made us your own. And God, I pray, I pray that we would be armed with the grace of God, that we would seek out declaring your excellencies to those neighbors next door, to the co-workers we're next to, to the people at the coffee shops we visit, Oh, that your grace would be upon our hearts and upon our lips. To the end that you would receive the glory due your name in Portland, Gresham, Spokane, in India and Peru, and to the ends of the earth. That your people, individually and corporately, would love you and live for you because of the great love with which you've loved us in Christ Jesus. In this we pray. Amen.